Welcome to this presentation of First Baptist Church Logue. We're glad to have you joining us today. Our mission at FBC Logue is to bring glory to God by being disciple makers. For that purpose, we present the following resource that it may be a blessing. Philippians chapter 3, and in case you use one of our pew Bibles, you will find that on page 981. I have to say, I love the songs that we've sung this morning. We, we always try to line our songs up with whatever scripture passage uh, we're going to have from week to week. Sometimes uh, that works better than others. Uh, but I can tell you that we've been well prepared uh, this morning for our, our, our singing, uh, preparing us to hear from God's word. Because Paul is going to remind us this morning, as we continue our series through Philippians, that living in a manner worthy of the gospel requires us, it means that we must keep the gospel front and center in our lives. And so we are in Philippians chapter 3, and we are going to begin with verse 1. Paul writes, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. So as we move into chapter 3, verse 1 begins with the word, Finally although finally is not necessarily uh, what Paul is getting at. Uh, if you look, you can see that we're, we're just over halfway through the letter, and so it's not like we're approaching the end or anything. Uh, but more specifically, this, this word is referring to what remains to be said. What remains to be said. And, and Paul, again, has been explaining what it looks like for us to live our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Uh, but then last week he, he paused and, and put forward Timothy and Epaphroditus as examples for the Philippians to follow. And now this morning, as we get into chapter 3, Paul is returning to the topic at hand. And this is a transition marker for that purpose. And as he begins to finish sharing his thoughts on living in a manner worthy of the gospel, he first calls the Philippians, in verse 1, to rejoice in the Lord. To rejoice in the Lord. As we've said before, to rejoice in the Lord means that our hope and our confidence and our satisfaction in life must be rooted in Jesus and what he has done for us. To rejoice in the Lord means that, that our confidence and our hope and our satisfaction in life are rooted in Jesus and what he has done for us. And this is critically important for us to understand because other forms of hope and joy will inevitably fail us. Right? Our circumstances are going to change. People will, will let us down. But God's love for us in the gospel is steadfast. It is a reality that we can lean on and rely on no matter what. And so as the Philippians face persecution, and as they endure the ordinary ups and downs of this life, as they try to tackle some of the challenges that they're facing as a church, Paul calls them to never, never, never take their eyes off the Lord. And the joy that we have because of what he has done for us and for what he has promised to do for us. Now you notice in the second half of the verse that Paul reassures the Philippians that to write the same things is no trouble to him. So this is the twelfth time in this letter that Paul has referred to joy. 
the 12th time, and I don't know about you, but I'm not a, a really big fan of repeating myself over and over. Right? As, as a parent, as a customer, and just in life in general, I, I can get easily frustrated when I find myself in situations where I'm having to say the same things over and over again, and perhaps you can relate to that. Right? But Paul doesn't mind. This is a, an issue that is obviously important to him, and it doesn't bother him to emphasize it over and over so that it sinks in. And no doubt this is true in part, because as he says at the end of the verse, repeating himself is also safe for the Philippians. Now why would Paul repeating himself be safe for the Philippians, and specifically in reminding them to rejoice in the Lord? Well, if nothing else, because there are always threats lurking around trying to influence us away from rejoicing in the Lord and to focus our attention on other things instead, as we'll see beginning in verse 2. As Paul writes, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. And so, picking up again in verse 2, Paul issues a strong warning. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. So obviously there are some people out and about, and Paul does not really like them very much. He is not a fan and the clue to who these people are is found in the beginning of verse 3, where Paul emphasizes that Christians are the circumcision. And this indicates that the people who are involved here claimed to be the circumcision. And that identifies them as, as a group of people who are often referred to today as Judaizers. Judaizers. So these were people who were Jews, and while they affirmed Jesus as the Messiah in some ways, they still believed that you had to follow the Old Testament laws in order to be saved. And essentially, they taught that you had to become Jewish in order to truly become Christian, with the primary uh, thing, among other things, would require men to be circumcised. And so, in the Old Testament, the practice of circumcision was given to Abraham by the Lord as, as the mark, the sign of the covenant that he made between himself and the nation of Israel. And so every male Israelite was circumcised on the eighth day of their life as a sign that they belonged to the people of God. And circumcision was so central to the Jewish faith that the word itself came to be used to refer to the Jewish people. Right? Y'all are, y'all are the, the circumcision. And the Jews accepted that. They owned that. They, warned, they, they wore it as a badge of honor. And they would say, yes, we are the circumcision. We are the people of God. But when Jesus came, he ushered in a new era where the people of God are no longer distinguished ethnically by the Old Testament laws, but spiritually through faith in him. And you may remember in our series through the book of Acts that in Acts chapter 15, the apostles and the elders of the church in Jerusalem got together and they agreed that circumcision and, and following the Old Testament law was not required for Gentiles, for, for non-Jews who have come to faith in Jesus. But these people were not satisfied with that. 
And so rather than rejoicing in the Lord and what He has done for us through His life, death, and resurrection, they focus on what they did or what they didn't do in order to be saved, with the primary activity, again, being circumcision. But again, under the New Covenant, Paul emphasizes that the real circumcision, the true people of God, are Christians, those who have placed their faith in Jesus. And as we read, he's not pulling any punches about it. He bluntly states that apart from Christ, circumcision is nothing more than an act of unnecessary mutilation. And that's no bueno. Men, can I get an amen? But beyond, much worse than the physical aspect, seeking to be right with God by circumcision and following the law is spiritually disastrous because it undermines the gospel, which Paul makes so very clear in his letter to the Galatians. You can't be made right with God by faith and seek to be right with God by what you do at the same time. It has to be one or the other. And so Paul tells the Philippians to look out for these people. Now the command to look out implies a certain responsibility to to respond to these people appropriately. And so like John warned with the church in his second letter, false teachers who compromise the gospel are not to be given a platform in the church. If they're already in the church, then they need to be removed from it. And sometimes this this approach comes across to people as as unloving. Why would Paul speak this way and and call these people names and be so blunt about this? But we have to remember that these are divinely inspired words that Paul is writing, which tells us that, among other things, God does not take it lightly when the gospel is confused. We should not take it lightly either. So the the true people of God we see in verse 3 worship by the Holy Spirit instead of the now empty rituals of the Old Testament law. We glory in Christ and what He has done for us and, and not in our flesh or anything that we can do in our own ability to make ourselves right with Him. And just to prove his point even further, starting in verse 4, Paul beats these false teachers at their own game. So we'll pick up again, beginning in verse 4. He says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And so picking up again in verse 4, Paul advances his argument against these these false teachers by firing off his own spiritual resume to demonstrate that his religious credentials far outweigh theirs. He says, if anyone else thinks they have reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And so to start off at the beginning of verse 5, he points out that he was circumcised on the eighth day of his life as a member of the people of Israel. That means that not only can he check that item off of his religious to-do list, but that he, he fulfilled that requirement as a member of, Uh, as a true Israelite, a physical descendant of Abraham, and not later as a secondary convert to Judaism. He also points out that he belongs to the tribe of Benjamin, 
which along with the tribe of Judah was the only tribe to remain faithful to the Davidic kings when the kingdom was divided centuries before. And so it was a point of pride to be from the faithful tribes of Benjamin and Judah. And so in terms of heritage, Paul was as pure-blooded of an Israelite as you could possibly be. As he says, he is a Hebrew of Hebrews. Moving forward, we see that in terms of the law, Paul was a Pharisee, which means that he took God's word very seriously. Right? The, the Pharisees were the strictest group of Jews when it came to following the law. And many of you remember that they even came up with extra rules to follow just for good measure. In terms of zeal or passionate commitment to his faith, Paul was a persecutor of the church. And we certainly remember that before he became a Christian, Paul was willing to kill for what he believed in, which is certainly more than what these false teachers are doing. As to the law itself, he says that he was blameless, which as we saw a couple of weeks ago is not the same as claiming to be sinless. It means that Paul was devoted to keeping the law, and that when he sinned, he used the sacrificial system properly, which is, again, more than what most Jews could say for themselves. And so to summarize here, Paul was everything that a faithful Jew could possibly be. You, you couldn't possibly get any more Jewish than he was. If, if anyone could hope to depend on their own righteousness before God, it would be Paul. And yet, as you look into verse 7, he says that whatever gains he had, he counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And when he says that, he's, he's using accounting terminology uh, that, that may be best understood in reference to the shipping industry. And so in the ancient world, shipping was a, a major industry as a primary means of transporting cargo from one place to another. And of course, obviously, whatever cargo you had on board was, was to be sold for profit, or as Paul says here, for gain. But from time to time, as we've read about in Acts and also uh, the book of Jonah, from time to time, major storms would arise on the sea uh, that would make it dangerous for the ship to navigate through, too strong even for the ship to navigate through. And when that happened, despite however valuable the cargo on board may be, the captain would order it to be thrown overboard in order to lighten the weight of the ship so that it would float higher on the water and increase their chance of survival. And if that happened, then the merchant would suffer the loss of, of all the cargo that he had hoped to sell for gain. Of course, at the end of the day, you would rather lose your cargo and live than try to hold on to it and risk dying. And so here, we can imagine Paul as being on a ship that is, is heading towards salvation. And, and his cargo is all of the religious achievements that he's listed here in verses 5 and 6 that were intended to turn out for his profit, spiritually speaking. Right? These were the things that Paul planned to offer to God as reasons and a basis for his salvation. But what happened when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus was that he realized that all of his righteous deeds were insufficient. They were not good enough. Even our best deeds are stained by sin. And if he tried to hold on to those accomplishments, his ship was going to sink. Right? Uh, so while they may have been points of pride for Paul, valuable to him, he had to throw all of these things overboard in order to gain eternal life through Christ. 
once Paul understood the truth of the gospel, all of the things that he had once held pride in, all the things that he had considered gain, he now considered loss and threw them overboard as quickly as he could in order to gain eternal life through Jesus and live. Now that's quite a change of direction, uh, but in verse, verse 8, Paul is going to go even further, and so we'll pick up one last time, beginning in verse 8. He says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ." the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And so as Paul continues, he doubles down and declares total loss when it comes to his own righteousness. He has dumped it all for the opportunity to know Jesus. And so a, a merchant on a, on a cargo ship would, would dump all of their cargo over with a heavy heart, but Paul couldn't wait to get rid of his. In fact, at the end of verse 8, he says that he considers it all to be rubbish, which is a nice way of referring to human excrement. And so Paul is as eager to do away with all of his self-righteous deeds as, I am ready to get rid of a diaper after I've changed it. I cannot wait to get this away from me. And so instead, we see in verse 9 that Paul wants to be found in Christ, having the righteousness that God provides for his people through faith in Jesus. And this hits on one of the most glorious truths in the Bible, which is that when we place our trust in Jesus, God simply doesn't forgive us of our sins. He actually credits us with the perfect righteousness of Christ. And so it's not just that, that God treats us as if we had never done anything wrong. He treats us as though we had always done everything right. And so if you, if you want to think about our, our righteous meter is through the roof because we've been credited with the very righteousness of Jesus himself. You see, Paul realized that, that trying to stand on his own religious accomplishments would keep him from having the righteousness that God provides for his people through faith, which is the only righteousness that will survive on the day of judgment. And so he gladly dumped all of his own righteous deeds and never looked back. Moving on to verse 10, we see that Paul's goal in life now is to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection and to share in his sufferings, which he says will ultimately make him like Jesus. It's an incredible thing, if you stop to think about it, that the God of the universe allows us to know him. But it's true. And through the Bible, through his word, and through prayer, we can know not just about him, but we can know who he is and have a relationship with him. And having been gripped by this grace of God through Jesus, Paul wants to devote his life to knowing him more and more. He also wants to know the power of his resurrection. And again, this is, this is more than merely intellectual knowledge. Paul wants to experience the power of the Holy Spirit in his own life more 
and more. Finally, Paul says that he wants to share in the sufferings of Christ. And that is such a challenging thing to say, that I want to share in the sufferings of Christ. And that's exactly what, what Paul says here. And he, he says that he understands that the experience of suffering as a believer is making him more like Jesus, which is what we saw a few weeks ago, that suffering for the Lord is actually a gift that he gives to his people for their ultimate well-being. So this is what Paul wants, and he says at the end of verse 10 that through this process he becomes like Jesus in his death. And then as he closes the paragraph, he notes that through this process of knowing Christ and sharing in his suffering, he will attain the resurrection. And the wording may make it seem like he's not quite sure that he'll attain the resurrection, but, but the point is that however it happens, whether it's a smooth road or whether it's full of difficulty and suffering, by any means possible, the ultimate end of our salvation is being with Jesus when he comes back for his people on the last day. And so in our passage this morning, Paul warns us to never stop rejoicing in the Lord and what the Lord has done for us through his life, death, and resurrection. Never take our eyes off of Jesus to focus on what we can try to do instead. And while this may seem to us like a problem that the early church had, the reality is that it is an ever-present problem that we still struggle with today. And another word for this, when we rely on ourselves in order to be saved, is, is legalism, trying to earn favor with God based on what we do or what we don't do. Now, obviously, None of us here today are trying to depend on following the Old Testament laws in order to be right with God. But it never fails to amaze me how many people will talk about the fact that they go to church, or the fact that they've been baptized, or the fact that they give money to try to help other people, or that they try to be a good person, they don't cuss. You know, you fill in the blank. But Jesus and what he has done for them never factors into the conversation. This is absolutely something that we struggle with today. People have all kinds of things that they are counting on as gain, but Paul would tell you to throw those things overboard and to receive the only righteousness that will stand on the last day, which is the righteousness that God gives to his people as a gift through faith in Christ. He's, Paul's been there. He's done that. Right? He's won all of the religious wards possible, and he's telling you that they count for nothing. He's telling the Philippians that, for one, they don't need them, but more than that, he is warning them that if they try to rely on those things, then they actually risk undermining the gospel. And so Paul is, is warning us to rejoice in the Lord, to never take our eyes off of what he has done for us. And so my appeal to you this morning is not to get to Judgment Day with a box full of your own imperfect, self-righteous accomplishments, but that you would turn today and place your trust in what Jesus has done for you through his life, death, and resurrection, the perfect righteousness that God makes available to you if you will place your faith not in anything that you can do, but in what God has already done for you. So our, our profession must be exactly what we sang earlier this morning, that my hope is built on nothing less 
than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Right? When, when he shall come with trumpet sound, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone. Only then will we, in fact, be faultless to stand before the throne. Now, it, it remains to be said that legalism is not just a problem for people who need to believe in Jesus. Right? Legalism continues to be a problem even for Christians who do believe as they struggle with the day-to-day operational impact of legalism. So it's very easy for us to fall into the trap of feeling like our relationship with God is based on how well we're doing spiritually. So if we feel like we've been particularly obedient lately, then we feel good about our relationship with God. But if we know that we've, we've failed, then we feel like God is, is dissatisfied with us, that he is rejecting us. And this practical legalism can lead us one of two directions. Again, if we feel like we're doing well, then we become prideful, and we look down our noses at all the people who aren't doing as well as we think we are. Or, if we've been struggling, we can become depressed and despondent spiritually and withdraw from the Lord in a sense of shame. Either way, we're going in the wrong direction, and the cure for both ailments is to come back to the reality that we have nothing to offer God on our own except our faith in what Jesus has done for us. If you are in Christ, hear me, church, if you are in Christ, then there is nothing you can do to make God love you more. There is nothing you can do to make God love you less. Because again, you have been credited with the perfect righteousness of Jesus, and there's nothing you can add to that, and there's nothing you can take away from it. Now, of course, we know obedience is certainly at the very heart of discipleship. We're called to be obedient. But discipleship always has to flow out of the fact that God has already accepted us because of what Jesus has done for us, which we receive by faith. And ironically, at least in my experience at least, it's when we are most at rest in Jesus and what he's done for us that we make the most progress in our spiritual lives. And so this morning, whether for the first time or for the millionth, let's rejoice in Jesus and what he has done for us. Let's pray together.